0: Well, good morning to you. Let's go to the Lord together uh, one more time in prayer as we are about to look to the Bible. We need his help if this time is going to be beneficial for us. He's faithful, he's good. He's adopted us into his family. He hears our prayers, he answers them. Let's go to him. Our Father in heaven, we come to you not on the basis of our merit, certainly not on the basis of our own righteousness, but we come to you In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and in his righteousness and merit, we come to ask you to be with us now as we look to your word. You are a good and gracious God. You are utterly faithful. You keep all of your promises and you have promised that your word always does its work. You promise that you are with us when we gather like this to look to your word and sing praises to you and pray and partake of the Lord's table. And so we pray that you would pour your spirit out in abundance now. Father, we pray that you would help me as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered here today. We pray for all of us that as we sit under your word, your spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds so that we might really hear and so that we might truly see and so that we might have hearts that would love what your word says. We thank you for Jesus. We praise you for him, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The fact that we can sing what we just did. The fact that we can have absolutely zero confidence in ourselves, but can have complete confidence that we'll be with you forever because of Christ. So come be with us now, we pray. Exalt your son that we might believe. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we have come to the end of our sermon series through the book of 1 John. Uh, So for those of you who are with us today and you haven't been making your way through this letter with us, I just want to say welcome to you. I hope that you feel in some way not only just invited into This gathering, but I hope that even though you're coming in on the tail end of a sermon series that you feel invited into this wonderful letter. The series title for um, this trek through 1 John was a letter of comfort and joy, because that's exactly what this letter is about. We've thought about together for 13 Sundays, the fact that John wrote this letter to Christians who were in difficult circumstances, Christians who were being bombarded by bad teaching and Christians who were being left by many of their friends, many of their loved ones, even in the church. So this was a tough situation that John was writing into, and he's writing to comfort the saints. He's writing to bolster their assurance and their confidence in God. And so that is what we have been thinking about together for a number of weeks now. And so you as a visitor today are invited to now consider these things with us. For the folks who have been with us for these 13 weeks, I hope that this has been as good of an experience for you as it has been for me in studying this letter and thinking about these wonderful truths and how good and faithful God is and how He does, in fact, desire that His children would know that we have eternal life and that we can have complete confidence In him and in his son. So, all of that is just some brief introductory comments from me. We have a lot to do today, so I didn't really plan a big formal introduction. This is our final sermon, and uh, it is quite a bit to cover in certain aspects. There's some things that need to be explained. If you've looked at the passage this week at all, you might be asking the question, like, bro, what in the world is the sin that leads to death? that Paul or excuse me that John says we shouldn't even pray for. We're going to think about that today. So I want to try to do some good explaining there and that's a sober thing and I pray that even around that sober consideration in the middle of the passage that we can be assured from God's word that we are good with God and that we have eternal life. So if you have your Bibles and I hope that you do, open them up to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking today at verses 13 through 21 the final verses of this wonderful letter. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, don't sweat it. We will have the verses printed on the screen for you to follow along with us. And we hope that that's useful to you. So before we go any further, I will read God's word for us. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I think even in this final passage, as you see some of those sober words contained in it, you also see this certainty that John writes with about the identity of his hearers and who we know ourselves to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this is a sweet time for us. I have three points for our consideration this morning, three points as we make our way through the text. And then to conclude the series and hopefully put a little bow on it, I have four pastoral encouragements just from me to you. So three plus four is the perfect number seven. I leave that to you. I didn't do that intentionally. My outlines don't have a great amount of strategy to them as you know. I pray God uses it nonetheless. Point number one, here we go. Point number one, we have eternal life and confidence toward God. Number one, we have eternal life and confidence toward God. We're gonna be looking at verses 13 to 15 for just a few moments. I wanna read verse 13 for us again. This is not unique to me. Many, many people throughout the history of the church who have studied this letter understand chapter five and verse 13 to be essentially a purpose statement of the entire letter. So what is it about? Why did John write it? He's gonna tell us. Here we go. I write these things. He's reflecting back on what he's written. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that so that in order that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you who are trusting Christ so that you would know, that you know, that you know, that you have eternal life Now, that's the purpose. We always want to know authorial intent, right? When we come to scripture and study it, what did the author intend here? It's always wonderful when the author just very clearly and explicitly pulls back the curtain. I've written this to you so that you would know that if you're trusting Christ, you have eternal life. As John is coming to the end of the letter, it's only natural that he would reflect back on what he's written. And he is drawing this letter to a close with this wonderful statement of encouragement. It shouldn't surprise us, just as we've thought for a number of weeks about what this letter is written to accomplish, to bolster the assurance of the redeemed and to comfort the saints, to reassure them before the Lord that they are, in fact, right with God, and to also just comfort them in the midst of hard circumstances, as they have been taught a lot of bad theology, and as they have been abandoned by people in the church. John has also written, as we know, to encourage them to press on in trusting Christ and to press on in love and good works. But I want us to think for just a moment about this reality that we have eternal life now. So it's an interesting situation that we find ourselves in as believers in this world. We are redeemed, yet we are still fallen. We are justified, declared righteous by God in Christ, and yet we are still sinners. Our salvation, on the one hand, is accomplished, it's certain, and it is being accomplished. Eternity and eternal life for us has been inaugurated, so it's already started, and it has not yet been consummated it has not yet been fully realized we live in between the already and the not yet as is so often said but we have eternal life now like really for those who sit here this morning trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ you have we have eternal life now not because of you not because of anything that you have done or haven't done not because you're good but solely because of Jesus Christ. We just sung about that. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, do I have eternal life now. Everyone, this is important. The apostle is speaking in this way throughout this letter, and this is the testimony of the entirety of scripture, that all of those who are justified, declared righteous in the Lord Jesus now will be finally saved. Everyone who is justified, counted righteous by faith in Christ today, will be finally saved. This is why the writers of Scripture will often use the terms justification and salvation almost interchangeably. Because to be justified is to be saved. To be justified means that we will be sanctified, transformed. To be justified means that we will be glorified, finally, in heaven with God Forever, so our present justification—that pronouncement over you, righteous in Christ, because of His life in your place and His death that is atoned for your sin—your present justification and mine guarantees our final salvation. That is good news. That's why this is no fragile thing. We're going to sing a song to conclude our service today about the fact that Christ Himself will hold us fast all of those for whom he has bled and died and lived. And because of these great truths, we have peace with God. We have confidence before him in Christ Jesus. And so friends, we need to be reminded of these realities all the time. I mean, I I can at least speak autobiographically. I do. I need to be reminded of these truths like every day because I'm so prone to forget them. In my experience, and I trust you're the same, It is so easy to think that Christ is not enough, that I am somehow going to blow it all, that I somehow, surely, I am out of God's favor because I've done this, or I am out of God's favor because I have failed in this way. My love is so cold. My affections are low. I don't feel like I have joy. Surely, I'm going to wreck this thing. No. Our confidence always lies in Christ And so we need Christ held out to us all the time. That's what we're doing when we come here on Sunday morning. More than anything is we come to behold Jesus. We come to look upon Christ, who is the one that has fulfilled the entire of Scripture, the entirety of Scripture, I should say, the entire law, the one who would be the redeemer of his people. We look to him. And that is how our faith is sustained. That's how our faith is strengthened. Oftentimes we think that if we're going to make it in the Christian life, we tend to think that it's about our effort and it's about what we're doing. And surely we should be talking about all the things that we need to do. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about how we should live. But primarily, first and foremost, always, we herald and behold Christ Jesus. That's how our faith is sustained. That's how we'll make it to the end. We're in desperate need of it. I want to read, I I read these words from John Calvin, at least part of this, in our first sermon in this series. I want to read these words again today. Calvin's thoughts on this verse are saying this very thing quite beautifully and powerfully. Here we go. Calvin writes, 500 years ago, he wrote this. The apostle says that he wrote to those who had already believed so that they might believe more firmly and with greater certainty and thus enjoy a fuller confidence as to eternal life. Then the use of doctrine is not only to initiate the ignorant in the knowledge of Christ, but also to confirm those more and more who have already been taught. For there are still in us many remnants of unbelief. That's true. But we ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed even by having the office and power of Christ explained to us his person and his work. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher in order to confirm disciples in the faith to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else. Amen. If I'm just speaking personally to you, if I was charged with that, that brother for his whole life sought to extol as much as possible the grace of Christ, that would be a wonderful thing. Let's put our eyes on verse 14. And Before we do, I, I said that about myself personally. I pray for our church that we would be a body of believers that would always want that, that would always want Christ held out that would always say, brother, yeah, like give us Christ because it's in him that I'm satisfied. It's in him that I have hope and confidence. Give us Jesus. Here we go, verse 14. Here's the confidence, John says, that we have toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So John, quite simply, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears and we know that he hears. We know that he answers. He always gives us according to what we ask when we ask this way. Just a few thoughts on this. God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers because we are now his children. Think about chapter three and verse one. Think about the wonderful love with which God has loved us that we might be called children of God. And so we are. That's chapter three and verse one. That's the ground of this reality that he always hears the prayers of his children and he always answers them. Now, don't be thrown off by this according to his will piece. This kind of warps people out of their frame. It's like, well, yeah, but like he says, if we ask anything according to his will, so like, what does that really mean for me? Don't be thrown off. God has promised, like write it down, God has promised to hear and answer our prayers, period. And at the same time, he does not just remove all guardrails to give us whatever might pop into our minds at any given moment. Praise God that he does not do that. How many times have you or I prayed for things that were absolutely ridiculous? I mean, guilty as charged, right? We pray things on the regular that are not for our good ultimately. We're so (laughs) short-sighted. We don't really know so often what is best when we come to God in prayer. We might think that we do. So it's actually a kindness of God that these words are in Scripture. That when we ask according to His will, He answers. It's good news that it doesn't say that when we ask whatever might pop into our heads, He gives it to us that would be a pretty damning reality. All of us, and just keep these things in mind as you think about praying according to God's will. All of us who have been born again have the Holy Spirit in us. So this this can't be lost in this conversation. If you're a Christian, you have God's Spirit in you. God's Spirit is active in you. God's Spirit is active in you to do a number of things. Well, what are they? One of the things that he does is what we pray for every time we look to the Bible. He illuminates the word of God so that we might understand it. So whether you're reading the Bible by yourself or especially even as we look to the Bible in a gathering like this, it is the Holy Spirit who is at work. Shedding light, illuminating, elucidating all of those things, the scripture, so that we can understand it. He's doing that for you as a believer. All right, so he's helping you to understand his revealed will, his revealed will in scripture. That doesn't, it's not lost on us, I hope, as we think about this praying according to the will of God. What else does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit prompts us to pray in the first place. It is the spirit of God in us, right? It is that life of faith lived in reliance upon the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in us that prompts us to pray. How often does that happen for you? where you just all of a sudden are like, yeah, I think I need to pray about this. That, I trust, does not come from you. The Holy Spirit not only prompts us to pray, we're told in Romans 8, 26 and 27, that when we don't even know how to pray or what to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes for us. So all of these things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian cannot be forgotten when it comes to a text like this. That we, whenever we pray, according to God's will, He hears us. The Spirit is working in you and me to teach us to pray according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is working in us, teaching us what the will of God is, that we might pray in accord with it. The Holy Spirit, when we are absolutely at our end of our rope, right, and don't know what to say and don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God is there and he intercedes. So this is a reality for the believer, right, that we will as the Spirit works in us, pray according to the will of God, and we can know that God hears and answers those prayers. This is a confidence giving verse. This is not one that should make you be hyper introspective, like, oh, well, am I praying the right way? No. Takeaway, the takeaway, pray confidently in Christ. Rely upon the Holy Spirit to work in you to continue to change the way you pray. And know that God hears you when you pray and know that he always answers according to his perfect will and providence. That's the takeaway. Pray and trust the Lord. Point number two. Point number one is that we have eternal life and confidence before God. Number two, sin is real and it is serious. Sin is real and it is serious. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to try to do some decent explaining here of these verses that can be difficult for many in trying to understand what they mean. We pray the Lord would give us grace as we look to this. Let's read the verses again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life, meaning God will give life to that brother for whom you've prayed. And he's clarifying that God's going to give life to that brother for whom you have prayed if that sin being committed does not lead to death. And then he says into verse 16, there is a sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. Verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So very simply here, I want to do some high level stuff first, and then we'll kind of get down into the minutia and the weeds a little bit. So high level, we are to pray for our brothers and sisters when we see them caught in sin. We look around, we live life in a congregation of believers. We all get caught in sin. We have not yet been fully sanctified. The takeaway, first of all, is pray for each other. Pray for one another. When you see a brother or sister falling into sin, pray for him or her. We are, as the church, to intercede for one another, even as the Spirit of God intercedes for us. We are to seek the restoration of those individuals who are caught in sin. We're to seek restoration. The Bible is about redemption. The church is about heralding that message of redemption and restoration. We are to seek that when we see our brothers and sisters falling into sin. And then God, we see God hears those prayers. You see this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. God will restore That person. Praise God for that promise. So that's the emphasis of these two verses. The emphasis is that we should intercede and pray for each other when people are caught in sin all the time with one exception. Like we should never make the exception the rule. Amen, somebody, right? We pray for everybody that we see caught in sin one exception. We're going to look at it. John writes about a particular sin that leads to death And makes it clear, right, that he's not saying that we should pray for people committing that sin. So the million dollar question is, well, what is that, man? Like, what is that sin? Before I even start, I think I'm going to make this clear. This sin, when it happens, is obvious. This is not something that you need to be sitting in your seat, warped out of your frame, thinking, have I committed this sin and I don't know it. This sin is very clear we're going to think about it. What is the sin that leads to death? It would be the same thing that is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. If we begin by thinking about the words of Jesus in the Gospels, he says there that anybody who blasphemes says something that's a lie about the son, about him, will be forgiven. But anybody who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So the sin that will not be pardoned in the context in which Jesus is giving that statement in the Gospels is where some in his audience, the leadership of the Jewish people in particular, are ascribing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. It's ascribing the work of God to the devil. All right. So let's just think more about this. Let's think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's think about the work of the Holy Spirit first as it pertains to Jesus. We know that Jesus is God the Son incarnate, fully God, truly God, truly man. In terms of his humanity, because he lived a real human life, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Let's start with that. Virgin birth. Is that a big deal? Yes. It is a big deal. We can talk about that some other time. That was a possibility and that happened in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's one thing. What else about Jesus? He lived a perfect life as a man in utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God. That's the second thing we can say about the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ. Third thing, the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ. Jesus as a man, right? Truly God, but we know that he set aside So much in leaving heaven to take on flesh, he humbled himself. He still is God, fully man. He is performing miracles as the God man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Fourth thing. But the life of Christ, how was he raised from the dead? He was raised from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. So just think about the gospel. What we herald, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, performed miracles in the power of the Spirit, was raised by the power of the Spirit. That's a big deal. All right. Think of the work of the Spirit with respect to the testimony about Christ, the message. The Spirit inspired men. He carried men along to write Scripture. And the scripture, as we know, bears witness about Christ. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gifts men to herald the message. Only the Holy Spirit of God makes a preacher of the gospel. So he gives those gifts that the gospel would even be preached, okay? third thing we can say about the spirit with respect to the message about Jesus is that the spirit is the one who ultimately in and through these means bears witness about Christ. We thought about that last week. Chapter five and verse six. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. The spirit of God is the one ultimately who testifies and bears witness about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. Okay. Let's keep thinking. Think of the work of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to the church. The church is built by the Holy Spirit of God. We don't do it. The Spirit builds the church. The elect come to faith in Christ by the Spirit of God. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. God's Holy Spirit does that. As Christ Jesus says to Nicodemus, right? You hear The wind, you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This is above your pay grade, bro. God, by the spirit, gives new life. Okay, so not only is the church built by the spirit, God's people come to faith by the spirit. The saints are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You don't sanctify you. I don't sanctify me. The spirit sanctifies us. How are we going to make it to heaven? Christ will keep us, yes. And we are kept by the Spirit of God through faith unto salvation. And just like Christ was resurrected by the power of the Spirit, one day the saints will be too. Resurrected by the power of the Spirit. I could go on all day in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, the ministry of the gospel, and the building of the church, and the salvation of God's children. I think we've said enough, but if you think about all those things that the spirit does, all those works of the Holy Spirit that we just outlined for a few minutes, have those in your mind, and then think about the words of Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, verses four through eight are also very serious verses. If you have a Bible, you can go and flip there, Bruce. I know I didn't prepare you for this. It's okay. If you don't get it up on the screen, brother, no big deal. I don't even have it marked in my Bible, so I'm doing the Bible drill with you right now. Hebrews chapter six, verse four. I'm just going to read these verses and comment. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Okay, so let's combine the thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit with those verses from... The letter of the Hebrews, the sin that leads to death would be for someone who is in the church. All right. So in the church, participating in the life of the body. To say, to look around, to hear the message, to look at what's happening, having experienced it, having tasted and seen and to have this assessment. I look around and I see this work that's of the Holy Spirit. I look around and I see everything that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness about. And I have decided that instead of it being good, it's from hell. I've decided that instead of it being from heaven and being of God, that this is of the devil. Like I know what I'm rejecting. I've tasted it. I've seen it. And it's wicked. It's abominable. I hate it. And I'm done. This is when someone in the church who has participated, I want to reiterate these things, has participated. Think of the language in Hebrews, participated in the life of the body. So, this is not somebody who doesn't really know what the gospel is, doesn't even know what the church is about, has never been in a context where the gospel is heralded, where there's real love for each other. We're talking about somebody who has participated in the life of a body like this one, who has experienced the means of grace. Preaching of the word, sacrament, people of God, prayer, song. Who has tasted of the goodness of God's word. That's real. Who has come to the table over and over and over again. Who in those things, when the writer of the Hebrews says, has shared in the Holy Spirit, that's what he means. Sharing in the spirit of God as the spirit of God uses these means in the life of the church. This person has participated fully in it. And then has concluded this is from hell and I'm out. So this sin, as I've said already, friends, is obvious when it happens. It is jarring when it happens. I've been a part of a church where this happened. I'm not going to go into detail about it. If You wanted to talk to me offline about it. We could. It was unreal in every horrible way. And it was obvious to everyone. So the writer to the Hebrews in describing this situation says that it's impossible to restore such a person. We take God at his word. That's hard. And we take God at his word. He compares that person in verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6 to a land that has drunk the rain, but does not produce the fruit for which it's cultivated. It's drunk the rain, but it's producing thorns and thistles producing briars, and that land is to be burned It's the words of Scripture. So I want to be really clear about this. This is one particular situation. It's very obvious, and it's horrifying. In every other case of sin, in every other case of even unrepentant sin, we pray. So we're a church that practices church discipline. Church discipline is different entirely from what we're thinking about right here. I just want to be clear about this so that we understand the difference. In church discipline, the goal is restoration. We would remove somebody from the church so that they might be restored. In a church discipline situation, the individual in question has not rejected Christ. The individual in question is in unrepentant sin while claiming Christ. You understand the difference? This sin that leads to death is to have tasted and seen of everything that's good and to have partaken in the spirit of God through these means and lived in the life of the body and to then say, Jesus is from hell. The other cases are, no, I'm still a Christian, bro. I'm still trusting Christ, but I'm unwilling to give up this sin or that sin. I'm going to. I don't think that stealing is wrong. I don't care what the scripture says. I'm going to keep taking stuff that's not mine. I don't really care what the scripture says about adultery. I'm going to keep having the affair, right? That's unrepentant sin, all the while claiming to be a Christian. We pray for those people and seek restoration. That's the goal of church discipline. This sin that leads to death is different. It's a confirmation of a death sentence. It's just a different situation. Remember the context also. It's the last thing I'll say. I know this is heavy. Remember the context of 1 John. John is not writing so that his hearers would be afraid that they're going to commit this sin. So that's not how this should land on you today. It's not that you should be afraid that I'm going to commit this sin. Now, your reaction ought to be, Lord, let that never be me. I I think that's the prayer of all of us. May that never be me. God, please sustain my faith. Keep me from sin. That's the prayer of all the redeemed. But John is writing, you realize, John is writing to a church full of people who have seen this sin committed. They have seen people who were with them say, this is from hell and I'm out, man. Think of chapter two in verse 19 where he talks about all those who have gone out from us because they weren't of us. He's writing to comfort people. He's writing to help them understand how they should even think through these things and for whom they should pray. You got people in your body who are trusting Christ, but yet are struggling and bound up in sin. Pray for them. But these people who have said, you and Christ can go to hell, having partaken of it, he says, don't, don't worry about that. Don't pray for that. I hope that's helpful. I know it's tough sledding, but I would feel irresponsible as a pastor if we didn't look at that together. Again, the takeaway, sin is real, sin is serious. We need to pray for each other. And when we do, God will hear and he will restore those for whom we pray. Number three, point three. We're making our way on, friends. Here we go. Number three, very simply, we are gods. We are gods. We belong to him. We're going to look at verses 18 through 21. Verses 18 through 20 each begin with this statement, we know something. We're going to look at these verses together. Look at verse 18. We know everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So there we have it. There's some comforting words in light of what we just thought about. Everybody who's been born again doesn't go on sinning. Why? In this case, the emphasis is on somebody who's going to protect us. Let's look. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, right? He who was born of God protects him. So in chapter three and verse nine, we thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit in us will not let us keep sinning. And now in chapter five and verse 18, we read that we won't keep on sinning deliberately and unrepentantly because Christ will protect us. Praise God that that's true. Again, your confidence that you won't go on in unrepentant sin or that you won't go on deliberately sinning in an unrepentant way is not in you. Your confidence is in God. It's in the Holy Spirit in you and it's in Christ who protects you. Jesus, we read in verse 18, protects us and the evil one does not touch the person whom Christ protects. Jesus protects us to the point that Satan cannot touch us and so we will not keep on sinning. He guards us so that we will not be lost. He intercedes for us. He protects us because it's the will of his father that he would do that. If you think about John chapter 6, where Jesus says that all the father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And then he starts to talk about how he came from heaven, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I would lose none of all that have been given to me, but that I would raise them up on the last day. Jesus has been charged by his father to keep all of us who are trusting in him. And Jesus doesn't fail. He never fails. We know, John says. That the redeemed, that's us, don't keep on sinning because Jesus protects us from the evil one and he can't touch us. Take heart. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Very simply. There are two kinds of people in the world. We are of God, and then there are those who are not. We know who we are, not because we're great, but because God has done this. And we have been given a new identity in his son. We have been adopted into the family of God, and we have a new name now. We know who we are in the Lord Jesus, and we know who protects us from the evil one so that the evil one can't touch us. In contrast, the whole world lies in the power of that evil one. The world has a different identity than we do. The world follows the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, that's Satan. And where we, as God's people, are protected by Jesus from the enemy, the world lies in the enemy's power. This is the witness of scripture. From the beginning, there are children of promise and there are children of the flesh. There are seed of the woman from Genesis chapter three and seed of the serpent. There are God's people and there is the world. We know, John says, that we're of God. We're not of the world and we're not under the power of the evil one. So take heart. Next, verse 20. We know, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know God. Jesus came and he gave us his people understanding. How? There's a lot that could be said, but I'll just suffice it to say today that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God and that it is through him alone that we would know God truly. John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God the Son came and revealed God to us. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 17, three. Jesus prays this, and this is eternal life. You want to talk about having eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is a great one. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is beheld in the face of Christ. We know that the son of God came and gave us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. We're in God. And then he qualifies that in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So we, the redeemed, are in God and we are in God by virtue of being in Christ. We say the greatest thing in the world is to be in Christ for so many reasons. One of them is here. If you're in Christ, you're in God. You literally abide in him who is true. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. More on that in just a moment. John tells us we know that we know God Because the Son of God came and gave us understanding. We are in God by virtue of being in Christ. And in Christ, we not only know God, we have eternal life. Take heart. Verse 21. Now this kind of final exhortation. Little children, that's a term of endearment. We've seen it so many times. Dear ones, right? Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from false gods. Keep yourselves from worshiping other things. Keep yourselves from running off into error. Remember the context. It's idolatry everywhere. Lawlessness everywhere. False teaching everywhere. John knows that. Little children, watch out for this. There's false teaching and there's apostasy all around you and there's idolatry everywhere you look. Dear ones, keep yourselves from idols. I promised four exhortations from me. I'm going to give them to you now. So this is kind of family time. And that doesn't mean, I obviously, members of the church, if you're here with us today, just consider like you've been invited into the living room. Here we are. Four encouragements, number one. This is kind of in the spirit of the letter. I'm trying to take my cue from the Apostle John. Number one, dear ones, keep trusting Jesus. Keep trusting Christ. He is the true God. We just saw that on the page. He's truly God. So if anybody, I came in and sat and listened to the last few minutes of the time with the youth this morning. You guys were talking about serious things, about translations and all this stuff. But you were also talking about different sects and cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and all of these kinds of things that would deny that reality right there. That he is, Jesus is the true God. One verse amongst a host, 1 John 5, 20. What do you do with that, bro? He is the true God and eternal life. There it is. So keep trusting him. He's God and he came in the flesh. We've thought about that, truly man. He is the propitiation for your sins. You are a great sinner. Own that. So am I. And Christ is a great savior. There is more mercy in him than there is sin in you. He atoned for your sin. He satisfied the wrath of God for your sin. That penalty has been paid. You deserve to die under the law. And he died that death for you. So that in God's economy, he is perfectly just to pardon you. He's not just ignoring your sin. Christ paid the penalty. Not only that, Jesus is your righteousness. You're not surprised to hear that. I hope not. He lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law, because God requires that too. If Jesus only wiped your sins away, we're all going to hell because we're not righteous. We need righteousness that we have not accomplished. He did it. He came to fulfill it, and it's counted to us through faith. Praise God. He is your advocate with the Father. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. And if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He pleads the merit of his blood for you. He is your protector. We just thought about that. He'll hold you fast and the devil can't touch you. He is your resurrection and your life. In other words, he's enough. Trust him. Rest in him. Know that his merits have been applied to you and that he has accomplished everything you need. There is nothing that you need that he has not secured for you, that is not yours now by faith in him. That's amazing news. That's the gospel. The gospel is a message not of do these things. The message of the gospel is it's done. Trust Christ. He, my prayer for you and me and our church is that Jesus would be at the center of our gaze and focus all the time. We can talk about all kinds of other awesome stuff about how we're going to live together and how we should live and what God's word says to all kinds of those things. And Jesus is always at the center. He's at the foreground and the Christian life is only seen through him. So come here every week on the edge of your seat with popcorn ready like I want to behold him. I want to see Christ. I need him today. I want to see him. I need to see him in the word and in the songs and in the prayers and in the table. Come expecting and needing that. And when you come, most obviously when you come here, cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ completely. By here, I realize there will be some people listening to the audio. I'm pointing at the Lord's table. When you come here, cast yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. And brothers and sisters, all the time, point each other to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Write those verses down. I'm going to read them, but write them down. Paul writes, He, being Jesus, He is to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wisdom, righteousness, righteousness, Sanctification, redemption, Christ is all. Number two, exhortation from me to you. Not only keep trusting Jesus, number two, keep pursuing righteousness. Keep pursuing righteousness. It is worth the effort. Righteousness being obedience to God's commands. Righteousness being good works, as the scripture would call them. You have. So here's the great news about that. You have God's spirit in you. And so you want to do that. Me saying, hey, keep pursuing righteousness does not sound like we say as like a trip to the DMV. Or I got to go get my teeth cleaned. It's like, yeah, I want to obey. I want to do good works for the glory of God. That's what the spirit of God does in you. That will be imperfect. You won't always feel that way, but it's real. So. Keep pursuing righteousness. You have God's spirit in you, so you want to do that, but you also have God's spirit in you who will work to produce that in you. When you do good works or when you obey God's commands, you don't get the credit. The spirit of God in you has produced it. The beauty of it too, because you have God's spirit in you, it is certain that you will obey. It is certain that you will do good works for the glory of God. He will see to it the Spirit of God will work in you. So this is important. The Spirit will not let us go on sinning because He will certainly sanctify us. And while we are not saved by our good works, we are saved unto good works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by Christ's works counted to us. Amen. But we are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's pretty clear. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what is happening when you obey and when you do good works. Keep pursuing that. Number three, keep loving each other. Keep loving each other. Remember that it's not we who have first loved God, but it is God who first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we love each other. God's love for us drives and produces our love for one another. And just like we're not saved by good works, we're not saved by our love. But we are saved unto love for each other. And so we seek and strive to know one another, like really know each other and to be known by one another. So seek that out. Seek to know people and seek to be known. That's scary. But the gospel makes the church a safe place where that can happen. We seek to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. There will be those. We seek to rejoice with those who rejoice. There will be those moments too. Oftentimes on the same day, there's sorrow and there's rejoicing. Like we talk about in the membership class, it's a very emotionally taxing to be a Christian in order to be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we strive to do that by the Spirit. We pray for each other. We've already thought about that. We confess sin to one another. We gently restore one another when we are caught in sin. We share good things with each other. That's a fun part. I've got good things and I want to share that with you. I want to invite you in to share of these good gifts of God. We practice hospitality. We encourage one another and we point one another to Christ. All of those things would characterize our love for each other. Number four, lastly, thank you for trucking with me so far. Last encouragement to you is that you belong to God. You belong to God. You have Christ. You have taken hold of Christ because he has taken hold of you. You're safe now. You know the truth. You have eternal life in Jesus now. You've been adopted. You have a new name. God is no longer your judge. He's now your father. And what you will be one day has not yet been revealed and it's going to be awesome. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your heavenly father. And what you've been doing, trusting Christ, pursuing righteousness, loving each other, do so all the more. Jesus is the only ground of your assurance and your are standing before God. Look to him and be encouraged by what God is working and doing in you. I know I can speak for the pastors of the church that we are encouraged by you. We look around and see what the Lord is doing in your lives individually, what the Lord is doing in this small little body of believers that just got started not long ago, that nobody in the world cares about. God is doing great things. We're encouraged by that. And so you should be as well. And just pastorally, this is a very personal from me to you. This letter has really been, it's been great for me. I pray it has been for you too. And I want to tell you guys the members of CBC especially, that I love you. I'm grateful for you. You are an encouragement to me. It's a joy to be your pastor. It's a joy to follow Christ with you. And I am personally, I'm thankful for so many things. I'm thankful for the word of God. I'm thankful for what we do here every Sunday. I'm thankful for how we live together during the week. I'm thankful for the church. So thank you personally. For helping me follow Christ. I pray that you feel the same. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. Amen. Press on. Trust Christ. God is faithful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you still in need of you. Still in need of you to minister to us and to take your word and do your work with it. We pray, Lord, that you would, as we have not only thought about your word, but thought about your son. We pray that you would hold Christ out before us even now. We pray that you would sustain our faith and even impart faith today. We pray that as we come to the table, that we would be filled with joy and assurance and peace. We pray that we would be filled with gratitude and awe before you in what you have done for us in Jesus. Father, we thank you for how much you love us and how kind you are to us. We thank you and praise you that you know our frame and that you are very well aware of how much we need to be reminded of the truth of Jesus. Sustain our faith in him, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.